Welcome to the Queen's Return on Innovation podcast. This podcast is about sharing the success stories and lessons learned from experts and entrepreneurs from Queen's in Eastern Ontario. Okay, welcome everybody to this episode. We're so pleased to have Peng Seng Kao join us for this interview. Peng has a Bachelor of Commerce from Queen's with a specialty in international business and marketing. In 2019, IBM named Peng one of the top 19 tech titans. She's a visionary and a transformative entrepreneur that bootstrapped Transformix from the basement to the global stage. Transformix recently underwent a transaction to have its IP assets purchased. And in reading Peng's uh, LinkedIn profile, her personal philosophy for success is I squared RP, which stands for innovation, integrity, respect, and passion. In addition to all the company building and entrepreneurial activity, Peng serves as a mentor as part of the Queen's entrepreneurship programs. And so welcome, Peng. We look forward to chatting about the Transformic story. Thank you, Jim, for inviting me. Looking forward to it. So to kick things off, what was the, well, give us the elevator pitch for what Transformix was, and then rewind back to what was the critical problem you and your co-founders looked to solve at the start of Transformix? Yeah, so uh, where Transformix ended up was that we became a global supplier of advanced manufacturing technologies uh, innovators. And so by the time I was done, um, Transformix export about 95% of our business and became a global company from that perspective, bringing new ideas, new innovation to that industry. How it started out was uh, less uh, exciting, um, was a bunch of uh, former friends thinking, you know what, we got to find a way to work together. So unlike tech companies or most tech companies where ideas came out of labs or out of research or out of, you know, whatever the case may be, our came out of a passion to find a way to have fun at work and create something special together. So as four uh, friends, uh, myself and three other engineers, I had the business background, they had the engineering side, and bluntly, we really didn't know what we were doing. Um, I remembered, uh, you know, as a, a commie, I didn't even understand what is what does a mechanical engine do? What does it, you know, what does an electrical engineering do? Didn't understand any of that, but uh, we were young, uh, visionary, hopeful, uh, naive. I like to call it stupid, but let's go with naive as a kinder words. And literally just, um, you know, it was kind of paying you have the, the business idea, so start selling. So, so that's uh, kind of the catalyst. Um, we did have a product idea at the time. Uh, one of the partners owned a bar and restaurant, and they were looking for a smart um, liquor tracking system. So we start uh, developing that with some shred money. Sorry, some uh, IRAP money, not shred. We didn't know what that was at the time. With uh, some IRAP money, love fund from friends and family. While we were waiting for that product to launch and get to the market, we were desperate for money. And so, again, it was like, Pang, you're the business person, figure this out. So I start pounding the 401, trying to look for opportunity. I call in every fashion you can think of, every company. And from there, it kind of launches to start uh, offering engineering services, then move into uh, introducing manufacturing to go with that. And then eventually just kept building and reinventing ourselves to... Um, about uh, mid-2012, we developed uh, this innovative technology that we trademarked and patented called CNC Assembly and ATS Automation, which is the world's largest automation company, acquired the intellectual property at the end of uh, December 2018. And uh, so we wind down our um, automation business 
took our manufacturing division, spun it off to a new company called Newformix. That uh, three of my managers actually did that with my support and encouragement. And they're running that part of the business, saved all the manufacturing jobs. And uh, myself and my management team and all the engineers joined ATS to continue to grow um, CNC assembly, which is now called Symphony under the ATS branding. So that's Transformix in a nutshell, not quite elevator, <laughs> a very long ride to the skyscraper. Yeah, I mean, it's 25 years in the making or so, as I understand it, going from four to 103 employees. And then, as you say, started as more of a service organization and then morphed into a company that offered a platform technology. And as I understand it, it's a CNC technology as a solution for small part assembly that ended up kind of leapfrogging uh, the industry to to provide solutions that were valuable to people in, in the different supply chain. Is that kind of where, where you ended up when you talk about 2012 platform that you created? Yeah, so we called it uh, CNC assembly because when we were into, so it has nothing to do with the, you know, CNC technology as everyone understands it, right? Like the computer numeric control. We used that word. In fact, we, we had a hard time trademarking it, but we were able to eventually convince the uh, pan office to allow us to trademark and, and actually uh, register. It's, it's a uh, yeah, register trademark word is we wanted the market to quickly understand or associate the assembly process similar to your traditional uh, process for milling or lathe or any of that, right? Because in the industry, in the assembly sector right now, every autom piece of automation is customized. And so it's we use that word as a, the traditional word more to get the industry to quickly adopt the idea, going back to uh, crossing the chasm, you know, where how do you get early adopter to move into the early majority? And we didn't want to create a word that was difficult because the concept itself, although not difficult, but every time there's a new introduction, it always takes a while for people to understand. And so we were looking for a way to bridge that understanding quickly. And, and we were quite successful in doing that. When you talked about your markets primarily being outside of Canada, I understand you started an engineering office in Brazil and sales offices in the US and other places. Describe how, based in Kingston, Ontario, you can become a global supplier and building teams and finding talent and the sales cycle that you'd have to to go through to to find customers and, and land those export markets. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the um, there's a misconception I think that people believe you can't start a successful high tech company in Kingston because that's not what we're known for. And in fact, in the early days, I remember there was a VC that walked through our facility and their party where it was how in the world's a city like Kingston grow a company like a Transformix. And my response was that it was actually irrelevant to us where we were located because Kingston has a lot of benefits. And, you know, if we want to talk about what some of the benefits for Kingston, we can do that later. But from our perspective, it was a great city for us to build our little organization at the time. From a global perspective, when you have something that the market want and you communicate in a way that appeals to them, that connects with them, they don't really care uh, where you're located. They just care about your technology and whether or not you're going to support it. Same thing with talented skills. Again, I believe that if you have something to offer, uh, whether it's uh, the culture that people are looking to join, and particularly when you're looking, majority of your employment base is uh, engineers who are you know engineers that want a creative environment 
to be able to have their uh, innovation come to fruition, you care less about the locations than what that culture and what that company is going to bring to you. So we did not have a lot of trouble attracting talent. In fact, we have talent coming to knock on our doors because they could see what we were doing. And um, I always say that, you know, companies like to brag about how innovative they are or the fact that they are creating all these innovation. The reality is the larger the corporation and the more challenging it is to have that innovative culture. And you do need more of this sort of startup to be able to build that innovation and, and balance a lifestyle for employees. So I would say that Kingston was more of a benefit to us than a hindrance. As you talked about the acquisition of the IP and some of the, the team fanning out, that's the compound benefit of a company like Transformix been in existence for 25 years where people then kind of fan out and, and start new things and the collective experience grows, brings in new people and the cycle continues. So obviously we're very keen that uh, that those people are still hopefully in Kingston and uh, yourself as well. Uh, kind of like the research in motion story, right? Where BlackBerry, you know, eventually had its challenges, but those folks fanned out into other things to grow the ecosystem. So is that is that kind of what's happening with the the, the life after after this transaction? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the life after the transaction is that uh, three of my former engineers have took the remaining assets of Transformix, so our manufacturing division, and spun that off into a new company. And in fact, they're looking to grow that now because I think manufacturing is uh, coming back to Canada. There's a, a better understanding in our political leadership that manufacturing or advanced manufacturing truly is one of the pillar of our economic engine and must be supported. COVID, I think COVID really drives that home because you can't decimate your manufacturing sector and expect that uh, when something like a pandemic hit where you need, um, you know, medical device or PP, uh, uh, protective gears, all of a sudden you're looking for your Canadian manufacturers to be able to support and can't find support because you've decimated that that that's the sector, the very sector that that create value and 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 be able to produce these products. So, COVID in many way has uh, heightened what I've been claiming for many years that we need to continue to build our manufacturing base. And so, Newformix being spun off out of Transformix and um, kept all those manufacturing jobs and now growing that those manufacturing jobs. To your point, Jim, we were kind of the parent that gave birth to that. And then from there, I know of employees who have spun off other companies, most of my engineers. So ATS, as part of the acquisition, uh, agreed to create a ATS Innovation Center here in Kingston. In fact, we are housed in the Innovation Park out on uh, 945 Princess Street. All of my, I shouldn't say all, majority of my engineers who developed and innovate this technology that ATS acquired are now part of the ATS team in the ATS Innovation Center. And we continue to advance the development of this technology that Transformix started and going global with it. And I'm actually leading the commercialization team for ATS with this technology. So, Well, that sounds like a wonderful outcome and great to see all that talent here and a new partner seeing the vision and continuing to uh, allow the vision to unfold. I'll take a step back. One of the things, Peng, when we talk to startups is they, they often think about Canada or the province of Ontario as their market. And you were probably almost the polar opposite of that. 
as a startup, do you think you, sh you probably shouldn't be shy of thinking about where the best market is and wherever that is in the world, go after it from day one, rather than starting something that may be local because it's convenient versus really looking where the market market should be for your product or service? And Jim, you, you're absolutely right. You know, Transformix ran, went down the same trap, if you want to call it. So the first 10 years of our existing, we were very much focused locally, you know, east of, east of Toronto, south into Syracuse, New York, but nowhere further than that. I mean, in some way, we have to do that, right, to horn our skills, to horn our understanding of the market, to go through that growth curve, because we didn't come, we didn't grow out of a, an R&D or a technology-based business. But if you are, then I absolutely agree with you, Jim, that people need to have a broader global look of where is the biggest market potential and not fear this idea of uh, exporting because the word exporting or the idea of going to a different market beside the U.S. or Canada where there's different culture, different language barriers, different, you know, whatever. You just keep putting the word different in front of all the business challenges that an entrepreneur face. And I think it's... Um, it's quite scary for people. It's uh, lots of barriers to overcome, but I think it must be if you do have a, so my message to startup is that if you do have a technology that you feel that uh, the global market wants it, then don't be afraid. You know, there's lots of uh, government organizations, lots of programs these days to support export. There's a lot of, uh, I know, so I'm part of the We Can program under Queens for women entrepreneurs. And I'm one of the mentor for fast track exporting. So, you know, with, with all these different accelerator programs for startups, I think it's imperative that young startup think globally and act locally in terms of how they want to tackle the market. And there's lots of support available. You just got to figure out where to reach out. And so what advice or what process did Transformix end up using as part of its sales cycle? So we've, we're encouraging student startups to think globally as quickly as they can. What, describe your sales process or your channel to acquire customers or have sales of your product services or systems. We've gone through many different uh, sales process, Jim. So in the early days, <laughs> this is 20 plus years ago where technology was not uh, readily available my skill set was important because I came from a lot of sales experience where I know how to cold call. You know, it's a matter of trying to identify potential customer and literally my strengths come from being able to pick up the phone and within five to 10 seconds convince somebody on that end to meet up with me. And I used to call myself the door opener. So, you know, I'm able to get in without a technical background. I don't have an engineering background. 25 years later, I still don't have a technical background other than some engineers do think that I, I'm an engineer because I can speak their language. But, you know, as I joke with one client, I can walk the walk. Sorry, I can talk the talk, but I can't walk the walk. So you don't want me to design. Uh, so I used to co call a lot and a lot of one on one meeting. By the time we got to the product, the CNC assembly technology, what we ended up doing again, you know, that was uh, 20, 2012, obviously social media become more obvious to use. And uh, so we actually were very good at adopting our website to be flexible, targeting. We would identify industries and companies that we want to target within those industries, use the internet to figure out, you know, what people website or email address would look like and send targeted email with a targeted uh, link to our website that we have custom just for the specific customers. And 
follow up with phone calls and you know one-on-one -on -one is so important and so the whole idea you know what I what I noticed over the years with the entrepreneur world we talked a lot about technology and supporting innovation and all of that but one of the big pieces of the puzzle that seemed to be missed is the commercialization side and that encompasses being able to co-call able to prospect not just the marketing but there's a big gap that um doesn't talk about very much in the entrepreneurial world. And it's that is how do you prospect when you don't have connection to that industry? And that's a missing art that has not been taught. And I think it should be taught uh, in the Excel, in all the acceleration programs, which I'm not seeing, to be honest. Yeah, we've had a, a couple of cohorts that go through some sales training. And, and it's not typically, particularly in the STEM areas, a, a sales course is not something that's part of a, an engineering degree, and maybe nor should it be. But at the end of the day, it's all about uh, human interactions. It's interesting you describe earlier days of Transformics being outbound in terms of you're, you're reaching out to people, but then as technology grows, you can start using technology to help you qualify some of those leads so that people coming inbound or answering your emails are closer to to your target customer. But there is no substitute. We, we try and make the analogy of, think about applying for a job you know, your first goal is to put a resume together and get an interview. And then, you know, your next goal is to have another interview. And then you know, we find some of the earlier entrepreneurs try and do all those steps at once and send, you know, one long email with a 30-page document to say, here, buy my product, as an example. And it's an iterative process. And as you've said, you really have to be on the pulse of who's on the other end of the phone with you. And it's more about listening than talking. It's about asking probing questions to help qualify these people as buyers. So you know, great point. So as I guess the lesson you're recommending here, words in your mouth is figure out how you're going to get your sales working because somebody certainly needs to do that early on and they need to either get good at it or bring somebody in that's good at it. And you're absolutely right, Jim. It's, it's extremely important that you have if you're if you're the engineers and you don't have that skill set, then bring somebody in who does have that skill set to be able to make connection very early on. I always say sales is like being a chameleon, right? Like you have to be able to adapt and change. It's not, it's not all, it's not one size fit all. You have to be able to understand your the person you're interacting with, what is, you know, what are their pain points? And before be, before you're able to talk about the prescription or the drugs that you're gonna provide to them. It's kind of like, right, you can't just arbitrarily say, well, here's my products and here's all the features and benefits and you know, expecting people to buy because you're not speaking in, in their language. So that's sales. Marketing is different. Marketing is much more broad scope in terms of understanding specific market and what messages that you have to get through. In the early day of a startup, you are more a sales company versus a, uh, a market company, if you, can, if you understand the distinctions. Where it, you, when you're trying to attract the early sales or early adopter that interaction, that one-on-one, -on -one, that connection, that conversations, and it's not one, it's multiple conversations, is so critical as you're looking at the overall market and how to build a strategy around the overall market. So sales is short-term, market is longer-term, but they have to work hand-in-hand. -hand. And I think that's a piece of the puzzle that's missing with a lot of entrepreneurs. You know, I recently did a, um, a presentation for a conference in the engineering mag design engineering magazine, and one of my slides was 
with, uh, you know, Kevin Costner, feel a dream, right? If you build it, they will come. Well, not in business. If you build it, they don't come unless you communicate in a way that connect with them, that, ex- that makes them understand, you understand their pain points before they will come. And that's the challenge for a lot of, I would say, tech entrepreneurs. I don't know about every other industry, but tech entrepreneurs, because that's the world I come from that I see a lot of, is this idea of if I build a better mousetrap, everybody will want it. Not really, you know, so. You do need to go actively in outreach. And I don't mean to get your comment on sort of a follow-up question here, which is there's a bit of a stigma associated with sales. Like some people think of the door-to-door salesperson of old that was trying to sell you a widget door-to-door. And, and that, you know, generally can make people that may be more on the introvert side of things very uncomfortable. And it's that's really not what the process is. If you're kind of doing that mass door-to-door type approach, you're, you're probably not quite doing it right. But it is really about, as you said, building a relationship and understanding somebody's needs and either qualifying or disqualifying them and continuing the conversation. Would you say that's a reasonable analogy? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Jim, in the sense that uh, sales has such a negative stigma because of this perception of, let's say, a used car salesperson or, a, you know, to your, your point, a door-to-door where it's a one transactive engagement and then it's disappeared, right? It's, it's not like that at all in the professional world of, a let's say, a talk, uh, tech sales where it's much more about relationship building. It's long-term, it's ongoing. And I think we need to t- remove that stigma of this idea of uh, being a salesperson. Honestly, I've been in sales since I graduated from Queens in uh, 1995 Commerce. And I would say that for the first 10 years, let's say, if someone said, oh, you're a salesperson, I'm like, no, 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 I'm not a salesperson. But the reality is, of course, I'm a salesperson. And these days, I always quote the Boiler's Room, right, with uh, Ben Affleck that says, in every interaction, a sale's going on. Either you're selling me why you don't want my whatever I'm offering, or I'm selling you why you want it. And I think when you get comfortable with this idea of concept, this idea of sales, then you become to see that sales is the lubricant that make a wheels work. The economy, the, if you think of a, the economy as an engine or a wheel, well, you need that lubricant. And the lubricant is the salespeople and the sales team that's getting that reaction, that, that the, the parts moving smoothly and you have a different perception. So then all of a sudden then sales become less negative and more positive and get comfortable in that role. If you're the CEO or if you're a startup you are the first salesperson for your product. And if you're not comfortable with that, then you're going to have a very challenging time with your business because without it, how would anybody else know about it? Whether it's selling to customers, selling to investors, selling to employees, you're constantly selling. And I am now embracing this idea is no matter what my title is, I am a salesperson first and foremost. And then the second piece we've heard of is as a, as a, as a salesperson and in an early stage company, who else is going to do sales, but the founders, right? Everybody's somebody on the founding team has to do sales. I think you've got to be ready for a high level of rejection and to not take it personally, right? Like I think depend if you've done your prospecting, right, your, your hit to miss ratio should, should get better over time, but you've got to be a little bit Teflon coded. I think, would you say, is that another observation or no? That is 100% dead on Jim in that you have to embrace rejection 
And in fact, the sooner someone rejects you, the sooner you can find out why they reject you, learn from it, and move on to the next one. And you're absolutely right; it's not personal. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're going in and you're abrasive and you're arrogant and you talk down to people and you know all the things that sales 101 tell you not to do, but you're doing it, then maybe it is you, right? So I hope you take some lesson and read up on how to sell if you don't have any sales experience or contact someone who has a lot of experience and get some training before you go in. But rejection is not a reflection of you if you don't do all the stuff that I just said. You know, there are a number of reasons why sales didn't go through. Maybe it's you know your product, maybe it's the price, maybe it's who knows, maybe, 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 right? So all these reasons, and、um, it's important to at least find out why. So for me personally, pretty much every sales meeting that I used to come out of, I would sit in my car, think about it, analyze it, work you know through my head. What did I do that was right? Which one did I need room to improve on? It's never about You know what did you do wrong, but more like where's the area of improvement. But more importantly, is to not take rejection to heart. And a lot of time when they say no, it's more important to find out why is no, so you can see if there's continual opportunity, right? To see if you can turn that no into a yes. An example I had was years ago when I worked for this company in Toronto. I won't mention who. Actually, I don't even know if they still exist. And they had a notorious reputation for high turnover of salespeople. And I remember calling this one client, and he cursed and swore at me. Oh, I'm so sick of the number of salespeople that's always calling here. And he just went on a rant. And after I talked to him for a bit, he agreed to meet with me. And、uh, but he was trying to say no without saying no because I wouldn't let him go. I was persistent. He said, "I go fine." If you want to meet with me, you can come at six a.m. because I start at six a.m. I'm like, okay, I'll be there at six a.m. He's like, you are? I'm like, well, yeah. You said I could come see you at six a.m. So what kind of coffee do you want? Right. So, so you can overcome a lot if you just listen, ask a lot of questions. Even when they're mad at you, it may not have nothing to do with you. I mean, with this particular client, I didn't have a history of why he hated me.、It、was the first time I called him. But lots of questions, lots of listening. Don't feel hurt by it. It's not about you. You just gotta find out what the reasons are behind the no. So, as our last、uh, one or two questions, so Peng, I think the the region is really fortunate to have somebody with your energy and enthusiasm for entrepreneurship, with the story of Transformix and otherwise. And I know you sat on the board of the Kingston Health Science Center for a number of years, and you've co-founded the the Kingston Executive Group, which is kind of a sounding board for CEOs. I guess is my final question: What makes Kingston the place that that you want to stay and grow companies and have this? These entrepreneurial pursuits, and what can we do as a region to make sure it continues to grow?、Uh, you know, Jim. Thank.、Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm really enjoying these conversations, and I hope、uh, students at Queens are, if they hear it, feel encouraged that、uh, Kingston has changed a lot since I moved back 25 years ago.、Um, you know, we we moved back actually because at the time. Um, I had moved to Toronto, and my now ex-husband had moved to Ottawa, and we were trying to figure out where we both wanted to go. And the idea of coming back to Kingston was really appealing. And I ended up working for Unilever in this area, so that helped. But then we decided to start Transformix here, and it was a great conversation with a wonderful lady,、uh, Anne Pritchard,、um, at Kingston Economic, that convinced us this was the right place to set up our company. I have not regret that decisions. It was the best decisions of my life. 
Kingston has so much to offer from a um, balanced lifestyle point of view. Um, as a mom, now my kids are teenagers, but when they were young, to be able to work the hours that I worked, build a business that I did, be uh, involved in the various community volunteers that I was involved in, and still be able to be a full-time mom for my kids to you know pick them up from school, drop them off. And uh, my executive team back then knew to not bother me from five to eight because that was my my kids' time. Sorry, three to eight, unless, you know, as I used to say to them, unless the building's burning and you don't know what to do, don't call me. You know, it was, it, because I didn't spend hours stuck in traffic, I was able to do all these amazing things. And um, the community, um, although there's always room for improvement, I think has changed so much in terms of the recognition that the entrepreneurial space is something that needs to be encouraged and help grow. Uh, there's a number of uh, organizations, including uh, Ketco's always Kingston Economic Development, uh, lots of programs there to help entrepreneurs. Queens now with uh, women entrepreneurs with a WeCan program. Yeah, we got College at Launch Lab. There's uh, the Angel Network. Launch Lab, that's who, yeah, exactly, Jim. That's who I was trying to get as Launch Lab. So there's a lot of organizations that, you know, and then so, right, Southeastern Ontario Angel Network. Like, my gosh, I wish all these organizations exist when I started out, but we didn't have any of it. And Kingston Economic Development was great. They were, you know, I worked with all the various CEO through the years, and uh, they were very supportive, helped Transformics a lot. But, my gosh, all these organizations now, why wouldn't you think about being an entrepreneur? And it's not an easy path, don't get me wrong, and it's not for everybody. But in general, if that is your passion, if you wonder, hey, you know what, I'm graduating from Queens, 22, 23, young, I have a great idea, try it out, see what happened with all these different organizations to support you. It's way, way better than where I came from 25-odd years ago, as I said, and um think it's not just I don't think it's just all these different programs but also in general um, you know even our political leader under uh, Brian uh, Patterson over these years I think there's much more recognitions that that ecosystem needs to be showcased and look what we're doing today this would never happen uh, again 25 years ago so startup companies that start up from nothing needs to have a showcase to show that it can be done. It can be done in Kingston with support. And we need to continue down that path to, again, con- you know, in- encourage the next generation of entrepreneurs to take that risk because bluntly 80% of our job creation in Canada is uh, small uh, companies. And you can't become large without being small first, right? So can we do more? Sure, always. But where we were 25 years ago, I think it's tremendous uh, improvement, and that's just awesome to see. Yeah, given that most overnight successes take 15 years, your perspective is quite good. And to say, Kingston, we should be giving ourselves credit for the progress we've made, but let's keep our foot on the gas. Peng, it has been absolutely wonderful to chat with you. Thank you for sharing the story on Transformix. And I hope uh, students and grad students listening to this, that uh, you've taken some lessons as you're formulating your ideas to be entrepreneurial. Thanks very much, Peng. Thanks, Jim. Good luck, everybody. Bye for now. And with that, we'll conclude this episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, like, and subscribe to this podcast. 
If you're interested in learning more about research, innovation, and entrepreneurship, please see the show notes for a full list of programs and services available here at Queen's University.